Yodelay, yoo-hoo! Welcome once again to the Nasty Pasty Podcast. I honestly don't know why you all keep coming back when no one's been in this house since my mama died. But oh well, there you have it. Yes, it's me again, Andy Roberts, trawling through yet again some slightly nastyish movies from an era of grim gruesomeness in which censorious spoil sports were ogling up any movie that they thought could even be slightly obscene and then mewling about them to conservative British MPs. The bad boys that found themselves either outright banned or branded heretics anyway, the actual video nasties, well, they can be found elsewhere on other podcasts, like The Strange and Deadly Show or The Video Nasties Podcast. But this week on Nasty Pasty, we're covering two serial killer films that are based on the real-life crimes of Ed Gain. So we've got 1972's Three on a Meat Hook and 1974's Deranged, also known as Deranged Confessions of a Necrophile. Now, to understand the films a little bit better, we'll talk a little bit about the original inspiration, and we'll follow the truly awful tale of Ed Gain himself. So, Edward Theodore Gain was born in August of 1906, and would become known as the Butcher of Plainfield for his heinous crimes of murder and body snatching. In his hometown of Plainfield, Wisconsin, he gained notorious infamy after it was discovered that he had not only murdered two local women, uh, Mary Hogan in 1954 and Bernice Warden in 1957, but he'd also robbed corpses from multiple graves and fashioned macabre items from the skin and the bones of those he stole. Gain was a particularly sorry example of a man. He was raised by his mother, Augusta, who was a a devout Lutheran who frequently spouted how drinking and the world was evil, and that all women were essentially the devil's prostitutes, using select verses from the Bible to back up her views. Ed was particularly close to his mother, as she'd used the natural isolation of the farm where her family dwelt as a way to stop any outside influences on her sons, and he was summarily punished if he tried to make friends. Her oldest son, Henry, was starting to grow up and start dating women, and Henry frequently worried about how much Ed was getting close to Augusta. After Ed's father, uh, his name was George, after his death from alcoholism, uh, the two brothers had to do the chores around the farm in order to make ends meet, and it was on one summer's evening in May 1944 when Henry was found dead. It's now theorised that Ed was behind his brother Henry's death in 1944, which was incidentally ruled out as accidental asphyxiation from burning vegetation nearby, since no autopsy was actually performed. Now alone with his mother, Gain and Augusta grew ever more closer and even more demented, and Augusta's hatred of other women grew to the absurd. On one occasion, when she was visiting a man called Smith for some straw, she grew extremely upset when Smith started beating his dog, which eventually he bludgeoned to death. She wasn't, however, upset about the dog whatsoever, and she was actually triggered by the appearance of a woman at Smith's door who was begging him to leave the dog alone. She became very foul and spat that the woman had no right to be there and branded her a harlot for even making an appearance. Augusta's health was rapidly deteriorating, however, and she passed away on December 29th of 1945, leaving Ed without anyone to keep him company. When he was found by police after he was suspected after Benice's disappearance, they found a scene of true horror with multiple objects in the decrepit farmhouse made from human body parts, such as a belt made from nipples, tights made from lead skin, uh, lampshades made from skin, face masks made from the facial skin of his victims, 
full-size skin suits made from his mother's corpse, several preserved genitals, and even bowls fashioned from human skulls. The sheer scale of depravity lingered in America for a very long time, and it inspired a wealth of imitations in horror pictures, with varying degrees of explicitness depending on the film. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho was one of the principal films that took Ed Gein's obsession with his mother and pared it down to merely the psychological elements, and having the antagonist Norman Bates dressing up as his mother and, and becoming her. All of the elements of desecrating graves and making body parts into furniture was left out. One of the next films to take inspiration in a more graphic sense was the infamous Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Toby Hooper, which actually made the Section 3 video nasties list. Now this film remains as disturbing today as it did then, with the element of wearing face masks made from skin, household objects made from bones and skin, as well as the element of grave robbing. An element not from the Ed Gain legend, however, was the inclusion of cannibalism, which was an original element introduced by Hooper himself. And another one is actually the uh, horror movie uh, Silence of the Lambs, where the killer, Buffalo Bill, uh, his kind of objective to kind of get um, a female bodysuit in in a sort of transsexual type of way, this was also um, inspired by Gain. But this week, however, we're also we're looking at um, two lesser-known entries that also take inspiration from the same source material. So we'll start with 1972's uh, Three and a Meat Hook. Four young girls get together and have a small trip to a lake to have some skinny dipping fun. On the way back, their truck breaks down and leaves them stranded until local man Billy Townsend drives by and offers the girls to stay the night at his house. Billy's father is not particularly happy about the situation, explaining that women have not been in the house since Billy's mother passed away and that Billy knows how he gets around ladies. Billy assures his dad that it won't be like last time and proceeds to show the girls to their rooms and offer them food. Later that night, the girls are systematically slaughtered by a mysterious man, one in a bathtub who's stabbed repeatedly, two are shot in bed with a shotgun, and the last one is decapitated with a hatchet. In the morning, Billy's father runs to the barn where Billy has slept and rages that it's happened again, just like with Billy's mother. Billy becomes distraught and upset at the deaths, and after helping to dispose of the bodies, he drives out to the nearby city to drown his sorrows. Inside a bar, he meets a girl called Sherry, who takes a personal interest to him. Initially hesitant to talk, Billy eventually opens up to her and has several dates with her. The feeling is mutual, and Sherry eventually agrees to meet Billy's father when she is to visit at his home. 
Billy's father, however, repeatedly chastises him for his continued interaction with women and explains that Billy will do it again and she will end up dead. Ignoring this, Sherry and her friend Becky turn up to the house and attempt to make conversation with Billy's father, who is clearly drunk and begins making comments about them. Shooing them away, Billy chides his father for being drunk and spoiling the occasion. The next morning, however, Sherry awakens and her friend Becky is missing, as well as Billy. She asks Billy's father about it and is dismissed almost immediately. Wandering outside, she searches the ground for anybody else and stumbles upon a shed, and to her horror, the bodies of the girls from the opening are inside, gruesomely displayed on meat hooks. She flees back into the house and enters the kitchen, only to encounter Billy's father hacking up the body of her friend Becky. Billy enters shortly after and recoils at the scene that he's witnessing. Suddenly, an old woman bursts out of the basement and grasps at Billy just as his dad attacks him with a cleaver, causing the woman to bear the blade and fall to the ground dead. It soon transpires that the old woman is Billy's mother, locked in the basement for most of Billy's life. In the aftermath, it's explained to Billy by a psychologist that his mother was severely mentally ill to the point that she demanded human flesh to eat. Instead of allowing her to display this behaviour to Billy, his father locked the mother in the basement for most of Billy's life and makes out that she passes away. Still feeling guilty, however, he decides to murder random victims to use as food for his wife and blames the murders on the fragile Billy, who is completely overwhelmed by the emotion of what has just happened. What do you mean, boy? You just pick up those four girls on the side of the road? I couldn't leave them there alone. All of them might have been there all night. You get those girls out of here and you get them out right now. I can't do that, Paul. I told them they could stay here till morning. They're gone. Now, you listen to me. Those are the first women been in this house since your ma died. And I ain't having no trash in your ma's home. They're not trash. Oh, you know all about them, huh? You don't even know their names. Now, get them out of here. Look, Paul. Why don't you just go on to bed or something? I promised to have him out of here first thing in the morning. But I'm not taking him back on that road this time of night, Billy. I don't want to be unreasonable. But you know what happens to you when you get around women. And it must never happen again. It ain't going to happen, Paul. I'm going to go fix him something to eat, and then I'll show him to the rooms. I'll go sleep out in the shed. But I'm not taking him back on that road tonight, and that's all there is to it. Three on a Meat Hook certainly sounds like a typical exploitation film, but its title rather belies the not-so-explicit nature of the film's story. Being based on Ed Gain, it certainly gives the film some meat to add to the bones, but unfortunately Texas Chainsaw Massacre had already made the rounds at this point, and the shock value has kind of already been around, so to speak. This doesn't stop Three on a Meat Hook from taking inspiration from Toby Hooper's film, however, and the result is a rather disjointed mishmash of Texas Chainsaw and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Filmed in 1972, the movie was the second outing for director William Girdler, who would make several more pictures in the future, such as the eco-horror Day of the Animals, uh, Jaws rip-off Grizzly, and black exploitation films Sheba Baby and Zebra Killer. His first picture, Asylum of Satan, and the movie that we're covering today, Three on a Meat Hook, helped Girdler get his foot on the movie-making ladder, even though the pair were mostly successful on the drive-in circuit only. 
Having never gone to film school, Girdler was a firm believer in practising his craft on the screen and making money in the business. Despite being called derivative, Girdler felt that everyone who made films was derivative in some way, and that it was much more immoral to rip off the audience, so to speak. Girdler would finally get a big break when he obtained the rights to the 1976 novel The Manitou, and began shooting a motion picture with Tony Curtis and Susan Strasberg as the highest billed names. Tragically, however, Girdler would pass away at the age of 30 while making the film after a helicopter accident in the Philippines in 1978. The role of Billy's father was played by Charles Kissinger, who also had a hand as the assistant director on the movie. He was originally featured as a host on the TV programme Fright Night, which was broadcast in the Louisville area, but Kissinger would join Girdler on most of his films and he would also appear in other TV spots and commercials. He quit acting after Girdler's death, as he did not actually like acting without him. Billy himself was played by gay actor James Carroll Pickett III, who was also born in Louisville, Kentucky. After starring in Girdler's first couple of movies, Pickett would go on to become a major playwright and activist in the Los Angeles area, and he co-founded the Artists Confronting AIDS organisation with other openly gay actor Michael Kearns. In 1994, however, Pickett succumbed to AIDS-related complications and he passed away at the age of 44. Linda Thompson also makes an appearance in the movie as Debbie and she's more famous for her soundtrack work on multiple titles like Eraser, Pretty Woman and 1995's children's movie Casper. She currently works as a TV writer on The Voice and The X Factor, both UK singing uh, competition shows. And she was also famously married to Caitlyn Jenner before she transitioned. Special effects guy J.G. Patterson Jr. would go on to produce the video nasty film X by Frederick Friedel, which was eventually prosecuted by the DPP. The most famous of the crew, however, were the brothers William and Bob Asman, who worked as cinematographer and editor, respectively. But they worked on a variety of well-known films later in their careers, with William working on Speed, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and Gremlins 2, The New Batch, as a camera operator, while Bob worked as a sound editor on Speed 2, First Blood, Die Hard 2, Demolition Man, Lethal Weapon 2 and 3, Eraser, J. Edgar, Million Dollar Baby, American Sniper, and the most recent, Sully, Miracle on the Hudson. Unfortunately, though, there's not actually that much background on Three and a Meat Hook itself, as the film is very obscure even for today's audience. What we do know is that the film was financed with cash mainly from Girdler's Trust Fund, as well as local financing from realtor Joe Shulton. Another little tidbit is that the truck that Billy is driving broke down during the scene where he picks up the four girls, leading to several crewmen pushing the truck into the shot and leaving the scene without the sound of the motor. The gore sequences are bloodier and more violent than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but they're a little cheap and fleeting, quite similar to Frederick Friedel's axe in a way. We have a woman being slashed in a bathtub, which is clearly a take on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, two women being shot in the stomach with a shotgun, an axe decapitation, a leg being hacked off, and a cleaver being jammed into a woman's back. But apart from this first murder sequence, the film is actually relatively tame and it lacks the real gratuity that you'd expect from such a seedy film. It's possible that Girdler really wanted that 50-50 split between Hitchcock and Hooper, 
so it features the kind of nastiness and the griminess of Texas Chainsaw, but it has a major focus on Billy, almost similar to uh, Anthony Perkins in Psycho. The film's opening, the first murder sequence, and the behaviour of Par Townsend are almost direct lifts from Hitchcock's more shining example. The four girls seem to be depicted as the main characters, and are instead slaughtered within the first 20 minutes, harkening back to Janet Lee's Marion Crane. Billy's father likening the girls to whores and killing them in response to Billy's supposed infatuation with them is also similar to Norman Bates's crimes in the name of his mother. The griminess of the film, however, and the rough editing and sound are similar to Texas Chainsaw, with the bizarre plot of the mother being held in the basement and fed human meat via her husband, it's clearly inspired by the Sawyer family in Hooper's example. Even the money shot that's indicated by the film's title is copied from the more disturbing scene in Texas Chainsaw. But unfortunately, these two moments of inspiration are kind of relegated to bookends that cover Three on a Meat Hook's beginning and conclusion. The middle part of the film is mostly filler, with really long dialogue scenes and a large amount of padding from a featured band called American Express, who do several numbers during the bar scene in which Billy meets Sherry. It's unfortunate that so many of these leaden scenes are present as they make the film a little bit of a struggle to get through. Even more of a shame, as the conclusion is actually rather surprising when the mother's revealed to be alive, and this aspect of the plot does have some real potential only if it was better integrated into the film's story, because ultimately it just kind of feels a little bit rolled out uncontrollably at the end. The the identity of the killer isn't even that intriguing, as Billy is clearly too good-natured and obvious to be the killer, and there's simply not another suspect other than the father, who clearly shows dislike for women and is aggressive enough to do the deed. The film's distribution was poor, even for the day, and it only managed to graze the grindhouse drive-ins in the USA, being completely absent from UK cinemas. There was a VHS release in the US from the time from Regal Video, which probably made the rounds on the black market, but otherwise the film was unreleased mostly due to the obscurity and the genre of the film in the UK. The video covers were also very lurid in comparison to the film's actual content, which may have been unpalatable during the Nasty's Panic as the crackdown was directed mainly at the packaging of the films themselves. Exploited Video did manage to release the film on a very poor quality VHS in the UK a long time after the Nasties had died down in 1999. This was the only release in the UK until 2006, when a newly edited version of similar poor quality was released on DVD. Notably, however, the film did not suffer censorship in the UK due to the very quickly edited gore scenes, but the film is available in various forms now. And that was William Girdler's Three on a Meat Hook. So, very sorry for the slightly shorter deal with this one. There's really very little known about this film, so any fans of this one will have to wait for a new release with some special features. But personally, I wasn't really a fan of this one. It's just a little messy for me. It did have some notable surprises, but... I seem to have this thing of never really disliking anything so much that I'll never watch it again, probably to my own detriment, but I probably will watch it again in future under the right conditions. Anyway, let's get straight on to our next film, which is 1974's Deranged.
Hermit Ezra Cobb lives in the Midwest with his domineering mother, who is bedridden and religiously fanatical. She frequently spouts misogynistic abuse and compels Ezra to eschew any female company apart from her. When feeding her soup one evening, she passes away after explaining that if he needs help, to contact Maureen Selby, a fat woman living in the nearby city. After his mother's funeral, Ez becomes increasingly lonely and crazy, beginning to hear his mother's voice in his head. Eventually, after beginning to speak back to himself in her voice, he's convinced that his mother is still alive, and he opens her coffin and takes her corpse home, tucking it into bed. The decomposition gets worse, and Ez decides that she requires new skin, leading him to desecrate other graves and remove the bodies, often skinning them and then scooping out brains. Ezra's neighbours, the Cootses, show concern for him and convince him to seek out a female companion. Remembering his mother's advice, he seeks out Maureen Selby, who agrees to do a seance with him after Ez acknowledges that he speaks to his mother even after her death. The seance moves into awkward territory, however, after Maureen tries to initiate sex with Ezra, leading him to shoot her dead. Ez soon frequents a local bar and has eyes for the waitress there called Mary, who gets him drunk due to his naivety. A few nights later, Ez seizes an opportunity to drive her home after he slashes her tyres, and he drives her to his home where she's left outside. Eventually frustrated, she walks into the house to find a horrendous scene. The house is decorated with skin, bones and human parts, as well as three preserved corpses, one of which shockingly turns out to be a living Ezra inside his mother's clothes and skin. Incapacitating her, he ties her to the dinner table and tries to flatter her with musical instruments and ornaments that are made from human parts. Managing to trick him, Mary escapes and tries to leave the house only to be caught and bludgeoned to death with a femur bone. Clearly deranged at this point, the Coots family introduce Ezra to Sally May, the girlfriend of Brad Coots. Clearly infatuated, Ezra goes to the store where she works and fires a gun at her, wounding her. She manages to flee into the forest nearby, but Ezra hunts her down and kills her, narrowly missing the attention of Brad and his father. Back at the shop, Brad notices blood on the shop floor and remembers Ezra as the, as the last person to see uh, Sally in the shop, prompting him to call the police. Ezra, in the meantime, has strung Sally up in the barn, disemboweling her and taking out her innards like a, like a game trophy. When the police turn up, they find Ezra gibbering at his kitchen table with his macabre trinkets laying all around him. I'm not tired and I don't want no soup. I'm dying. No, Mama. I'm dying and that's all there is to it. No, you just need some rest is all. You be quiet and listen to me. If I go into a coma, don't take me to no hospital. I want to die in my own bed, my own room, with you here. If you need any help later, after I'm gone, call Maureen Selby. Say it now, Ez. Maureen Selby. Oh, Maureen Selby. Maureen's the only woman I ever did trust. She's fat, that's why. A big heifer. But she's the only good-hearted woman I ever knew. As for the rest of them, a lot of... Filthy black soled sluts with pus filled sores and. Is. Is. I. I. I can't breathe. You're going to be all right? 
just need something to eat. That's all. Honest. No, I'm I'm leaving you now. That's for certain. And I don't want to leave worrying about you. Oh, you're such a babe in the woods, a child. I sheltered you too much, I guess. But I just know some money-stealing bitch is going to come along and try to take advantage of you. Derange started out as a script by writer Alan Ormsby in 1972. And Ormsby had worked with director Bob Bob Clark on his two films, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and Dead of Night, also known as Death Dream. And And he approached him for his new script. Clark, however, was unwilling to helm as director as he found the material a little too disturbing, and he instead offered his services as a producer, though he was uncredited. Ormsby instead approached actor Jeff Gillen, who also worked with Clark on the films mentioned, and the pair decided to co-direct together. Producer Tom Carr wished to shoot the film on a location in Plainfield, Wisconsin, to make the film authentic to its inspiration but was told by the town council that the murders were too notorious to allow filming. Other towns in Wisconsin were similar in their attitude, so Bob Clark convinced Carr to use Ontario in Canada as a shooting location, due to a combination of the similar terrain to Wisconsin and the beneficial tax arrangements of shooting in Canada. Carr managed to raise $200,000 for the film's budget simply for his promoter work with acts like Led Zeppelin, Three Dog Night, The Temptations and Rod Stewart. An abandoned farmhouse in the Ganaraska Forest served as Ezra Cobb's home, which unfortunately doesn't exist today. The owners of the property, however, were never aware that filming took place inside it until a very long time after the film was released. The bar that Mary works at, Goldie's Tavern, was actually the bar of the Oshawa Hotel, where the cast and crew were accommodated during the shoot. The Coontz household had to be refound after the initial shooting location became available, due to the owners catching wind of what the film was actually about. While Alan Ormsby was the writer, it was actually Jeff Gillen who came up with the idea of the narrator as a storytelling device to give it a more authentic true story feel, and it was producer Tom Carr who actually came up with the title of the film. Now the script was written with humour in mind, as Ormsby actually wanted certain sequences to evoke laughter in order to clash with the horrible scenes, resulting in the film functioning better as a bit of a black comedy. Certain scenes, however, were different in the original script. Ezra chasing Sally in the forest was originally meant to have Ezra hallucinating that Sally is just a deer and he thinks he's merely hunting. This was changed during filming though due to budget and time constraints. Mary was also originally scripted and contracted to appear fully nude during the dinner table sequence but the actress Mickey Moore refused to bear all when it came time to shoot and in the final cut she has a bra and panties on. The part of Ezra Cobb was played by Robert Blossom who is more famous for his role as Old Man Marley in the first Home Alone film, and also some smaller roles in Christine and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, both Harvey Keitel and Christopher Walken had auditioned for the role, but Tom Carr felt that they were a little too young to portray the madman. Blossom was the last one to audition, and he was considered perfect for the part. Ezra's mother was played by Cosette Lee, who is curiously only 14 years older than Blossom. She quite obviously wears a grey wig in her short scene in the beginning to hide the fact that she was actually wasn't that old. 
The narrator was played by Leslie Carlson, who had small roles in The Fly, A Videodrome, and Bob Clark's proto-slasher Black Christmas. Alan Ormsby had a small cameo as the husband of Maureen Selby as well, who incidentally was played by Marion Waldman, who would later go on to play Mrs. Mack, also in Black Christmas. Even more incidentally, Carl Zetra, who composed the haunting soundtrack of Black Christmas, was also the composer of Deranged. The droning dirge of the old church hymns that play in the film was suggested by Alan Ormsby, and the main theme is a variation on the Old Rugged Cross hymn. In comparison to Three on a Meat Hook, Deranged is both much more gory and effective in its gruesomeness, with the special effects being helmed by Maestro Tom Savini. One of the more grisly effects of the corpses was created using plastic skulls glued to bodies that were composed of stuffed cotton and chicken wire. The faces were composed of plaster casts that were modelled after relatives of the crew, which were then painted. Sally's gutting was achieved with the actress Pat Orr actually hanging nude in the opening of the barn. To keep her comfortable, they kept her wrapped in blankets between takes, and they also had a heater placed in the barn to keep her temperature comfortable. She particularly enjoyed her work on the film, so much so that she purchased the original script copy from Alan Ormsby when he was selling it online many many years later. And unlike the original house, the barn that Sally was hung up in is still standing today. In 1974, the film was released, having a a brief run in American theatres and British cinemas. Now, in Britain, the print used was cut extensively to all the scenes of violence, with the brain scooping being omitted completely, while in the US, certain locations flat-out refused to air the film, such as in Boston. After this brief release in 1974, the film disappeared, and it wasn't released for a long time, and at some point in the 80s, it became apparent that the original film reels were missing, and the film was considered lost entirely. Thankfully, the original negative was discovered in the early 90s, and it was granted a VHS release in Britain in 1999 from Exploited Video. It was a pre-cut print, however, that was missing the brain-scooping sequence, which was contentious even in the US. The majority of the cinema edits were waived, however, except for the scene of Sally being disemboweled, mostly due to the fact that blood runs down her breasts. Beginning in the 70s, uh, the BBFC had started to become much more disturbed about the depiction of violence against women in film, particularly in regards to showing eroticised violence, which frequently meant showing blood on naked breasts. It was for this reason that many scenes in Video Nasties became problems, such as Fiona Richmond's death in the shower in Expose, uh, to Ava's stabbing in Jess Franco's Bloody Moon. It was in 2013, however, that Deranged was given the cult treatment it deserved, and it had a Blu-ray restoration from Arrow Video that waived all the previous cuts, as well as restored the brain-scooping sequence. Do beware, though, of certain prints in the US, especially from MGM, as it is commonly reported that the brain-scooping sequence has been removed from these particular copies, but otherwise, the film is actually freely available in its uncut form.
And that was Deranged and the end of the show for this week, guys. So thank you very much to all those who've listened to today's show. And if you have any feedback or comments on Nasty Pasty or any of the films that we've covered so far, please don't be shy. Do get in touch with us. If you can, you can email stuff in like audio or written feedback to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter under at nastypastypod. We also have a Facebook page with updates and tidbits about our episodes. You can find us just by searching Nasty Pasty Podcast. And if you're a complete nutter and you actually like the show, please also leave us some feedback on iTunes or a review or even just a star rating. Please, please, pretty please. I mean, it's such a sad situation watching Bottom of the Barrel Cinema. We'd really appreciate any feedback that you guys have. Now, next week, we have an evil children horror theme, and we're covering two horror films that concern children as the antagonists. So they are 1980's The Children and 1981's Bloody Birthday. Now, both feature children as murdering, mischievous menaces, but are they actually any good? Well, you can find out next week on the Nasty Pasty podcast. Adios! Adios!